Thank you and a big uh, welcome to our guest uh, speakers. Hello to everyone who's watching. My name is uh, Georgios Kasimatis. I'm the director of uh, regulatory affairs in DNV. Today we will uh, discuss the EU ETS and the integration of uh, shipping in it. And uh, I'm joined on this panel by Fotimio Anizu, head of unit in the Directorate General for Mobility and Transport at the European Commission. Stamatis uh, Tsadanis, uh, Chairman and CEO at Synergy Maritime Holdings and the Founder, Chairman and CEO at the United Maritime Corporation. Frédéric uh, Boutillet, Head of uh, Shipping at uh, Vertis Environmental Finance. And uh, Mette Asmussen, the Lead for Maritime Sector Initiatives at the, uh, at the World Economic Forum. So um, I would like to get us going straight away. Starting with, uh, let's say, a warm-up that uh, will help us frame our discussion uh, later on uh, why we must uh, learn to navigate the EU ETS and what we want to master about it. Um, I would like uh, so to have, let's say, your one-minute pitch to, uh, to the following questions. And uh, Matt, I would uh, like to start with you. So um, from the forum's perspective, why are cap-and-trade systems like the UETS important for decarbonizing the world economy. Here you go, Meta. Thank you so much, and uh, thank you so much for having me on this panel today. Uh, so, so maybe I'll just start out with that. So at the forum, we're really focused on how can we really achieve progress through multi-stakeholder dialogues. But one thing is really kind of creating that momentum from industry action and maintaining that momentum, but driving real progress uh, is really impactful when you have the, the the mechanism between what is industry actions and what is the regulatory framework that that really enables that so so for us the economic mechanisms such as ets are kind of a fundamental part of that of that conversation so through economic mechanisms like in the regulatory framework uh, that's really where the public constituents can be is that's where they, they play their part of the public private equation uh, and industry uh, industry action is then on top of that. Um, it's really where you can create the certainty for the actions that the industry constituents are taking. So, so that's why we really see the role of, of economic mechanisms uh, like ETS being uh, being key. Exactly, fantastic. And that leads me very nicely to uh, the next question, Fotini. How does then the EU, EU ETS impact EU industries and also EU citizens? Thank you, George, and uh, thank you for having me here. Uh, I'll start uh, with what uh, Mete has just said. Uh, first of all, uh, well, it's, it's a system that brings certainty. Uh, certainty about the reduction in terms of greenhouse gas emissions, because it's a cap and trade scheme. So it ensures that all sectors covered under the system will contribute to EU climate efforts. And you know that as EU, we have uh, really high ambitious uh, objectives uh, set now in uh, the EU's climate law. Second element I think is important is the element of cost effectiveness because um, ETS being a market-based system, it <coughs> ensures that emissions take place where it is cheapest to do so. Third, which is more relevant for the shipping sector, it creates a price signal, uh, which we hope will incentivize energy efficiency improvements and will reduce the price gap between alternative fuels and traditional maritime fuels. And the last but not least, it brings 
support because um, the revenues are used to finance mitigation actions as well as innovation. And uh, we think that um, our innovation fund where revenues are going uh, will be a catalyzer in helping uh, the maritime sector to decarbonize. Thank you very much. Now let's say, let's go on the uh, more operational side of things and the uh, mechanics of that. So Frederic, based on your experience, what is different or important to note about trading and uh, surrendering EU A's? Thanks, uh, Georgios, and thanks to Capital Link for having me on board today. And it was also a great pleasure to present uh, just before this panel a webinar dedicated to EU ETS. To answer to your specific question, uh, trading in US to acquire them is basically the first and necessary step uh, moving forward. And that's obviously for at least two reasons. Uh, being a financial regulated product, it is important to have a good understanding of the EU ETS market and what are the elements driving it, very important. It's also uh, in a second point to uh, have an established uh, trading strategy, that's very important, in line with your shipping profile and your commercial trading pattern, which can be based on volume, price, and timing. Then, being a compliant entity, obviously, you, you will most likely bank the units in your GHG account before to surrender them before the next deadline, i.e. for shipping September 2025. However, this doesn't prevent uh, obviously, ship owners and compliant entity to sell the units and buy them again, trying to improve their average cost by optimizing their entry points. A non-compliant entity will trade or buy EUAs, but with the only intention to sell, sell them at a later stage, um, as their approach is only a speculative, speculative one. Thank you. Very good, thank you. And uh, finally, Stamat is uh, to you. So, what does the EU ETS mean to you at first glance? Uh, just on, on its surface, is it is it a threat? Is it an opportunity? Let's uh, get with that uh, a first impression from your side too. Thank you, and uh, thank you for having me here today. Um, for us, the EU ETS uh, is a necessary measure uh, to be implemented. I fully agree with uh, Fotimi's previous comment that uh, it's going to help the industry um, best utilize the fleet uh, and uh, make it more and more efficient because we feel that um, the current fleet operating not only in European waters but also in the global waters are not fully is not fully optimized, especially the dry bulk fleet. Um, and that has a lot of room for improvement. I think that the EU ETS is the first monetary element of all the new regulations that have um, been introduced into the market that is going to have an impact on the cash flow of the companies, the charters, and the end users. Because all these years we've been hearing about the EXI and the CII and now the EU ETS, but the EU ETS is the first actual monetary impact on the companies, and that is going to help rationalize, improve, and best optimize the fleet, which has a lot of room for improvement. As far as we are concerned, and we fully applaud that, as far as we are concerned, we do not take uh, an active or a passive view. We don't see that as a threat or as an opportunity. The only opportunity is the fleet optimization. 
as far as um, the cash flow is concerned, for our companies, the boards have decided to be a complete pass-through on the EU ETS, meaning that since we operate all our fleet under uh, a time charter agreements, we feel that uh, all the benefit or the cost associated with the EU ETS system is going to be passed through our company from you know, uh, the charters down to all the chain of the transportation chain. And I believe this is proper. The role of the ship owners in all the regulatory environments, in my opinion, is not to reinvent the wheel, but try to um, be part of the whole chain in the most efficient way. That's, that's it as far as we're concerned. Thank you. Okay, very good. Thank you for sharing these uh, insights. And uh, I think that also leads me very nicely into the next part. We have already started zooming in uh, into several aspects of the ETS here. And I would say that we are done with our warm-up. So let's, uh, let's get to the topic even deeper together with our viewers. Um, I want to turn to the fact that um, several actors in the, uh, in the industry stress often that shipping is truly international. And so it is very important to preserve the role of the IMO as a prime regulatory arena, right? Also, many have highlighted concerns about the complexities of including uh, shipping in the UETS in terms of it not being tailor-made to shipping. And of course, uh, I think already uh, you have highlighted some of those aspects. So I will come back to you, Fotini, uh, referring to the balance between, let's say, international and, and, and regional measures. It is clear uh, since uh, last week, uh, of course, in the IMO, we had the MEPC 80. So we have a timeline, uh, timeline now, and we know that we are still some years away from implementing a, a global economic measure uh, by the IMO. Why not wait a little bit more? What uh, do we gain by doing this now? Thank you, Georgios. Uh, in fact, I'll try to reply both to your question and to, uh, when it comes to the relationship between regional and international measures. Well, uh, climate change is here, huh? so we cannot really wait. And uh, well, that is a little bit uh, the, the well, little bit. That is the reason why the mm. EU uh, has uh, set uh, bold economy-wide uh, targets to implement the Paris Agreement. And in fact, we are speaking here of ETS, but our Fit for 55 package is a broader package uh, that comprises also the fuel EU maritime that is there to introduce a greenhouse gas um, intensity reduction target, a gradual one, which will allow uh, a phased-in introduction of renewable and low-carbon fuels. We have also infrastructure regulation uh, that setting requirements for infrastructure to ports, and we have uh, also addressed the supply side with the renewable energy directive. Now, so in the EU, we have a very complete framework soon in place uh, that we hope will bridge the gap between conventional and um, alternative fuels, promote their uptake, and assure the uh, infrastructure development. Mm -hmm. But at the same time uh, that we have this framework, and the EU has always been very clear to that, is we have always been saying that what matters most 
is that there are international rules because of course shipping is international by nature and um, that is why we have been working uh, the EU member states very hard uh, and us um, in order to push for global regulation and uh, we have been engaging very actively at IMO and in fact we are very pleased with the outcome of last week overall uh, and as you said, um, the IMO, uh, the MEPC said that we are going to adopt the midterm measures by 2025 with entry to force in 2027. Yeah. Before diving into the why it's urgent, I'd like to say two words that the regional measures are, we have taken are, are, are uh, important uh, for two reasons at least. As we are waiting for the IMO to deliver, in fact, our EU legislation is already here to put the sector on a transition path. That's the first reason. And the second one is that it is also here to prove to the world that world regulation is possible and that it can bring the much needed change. And in fact, by showing that example, we believe that the EU has helped in progress in the discussion at IMO and which has resulted to the ambitious agreement uh, at last week's MEPC. So that's a little bit to give our point of view on the regional side of measures, but clearly as EU we are going to continue pushing for uh, facilitating ambitious agreements as the one we had last week. Mm -hmm. And now the next step is of course to um, work with IMO to have clear and ambitious measures adopted by 2025. And we are super pleased with the ambitious timeline that has been adopted by MEPC last week. That these measures are, are really needed urgently uh, because we really need to put the green transition on track before 2030 and give clarity, greater clarity to industry, incentivize the adoption of zero emission technologies. And if you think about what it is urgent, we have this long life uh, time span of vessels. And even if one thinks that 2040 or 2050 are far enough, they are not because the ships uh, that will operate then are being built or operated today. So that is why a quick adoption of measures at IMO is super important. And the last point that I, we are always saying, the EU legislation is containing review clause. So in yeah. fact, when the IMO delivers um, on and adopts um, these measures, we will revisit our legislation to prevent any conflict with international rules. So. Fantastic. Thank you very much for that. And uh, you have also given us, uh, let's say, shared your perspective about, about what lies ahead. So uh, I, I may I may come back to this later, but thank you very much. And also thank you for giving a wider context in addition to the EU regional policy. Now, I would like to um, uh, go to Frederic and uh, Mette. And uh, maybe I'll start with you, Frederic. Referring to my comment about, let's say, the uh, industry-specific versus horizontal regulation, Based on your interaction with shipping clients so far, and I presume you work with different industries, 
Do you see a pattern or similarities with challenges in other sectors, in other hard job aid sectors? Yes, um, thanks, Georgios. Uh, indeed, uh, there are some similarities and common challenges for uh, obviously shipping alongside with uh, you know the, the other two industries, the, the other two sectors, i.e., industries and aviation. Um, clearly, <clears throat> some of them can be uh, briefly outlined. Uh, the first one is obviously could be uh, the opening of the uh, GSG account, uh, as it can be somehow challenging in terms of administrative burden, and is even more challenging for non-EU-based shipping company, as they will know only by early 2024 which authorities they are uh, they have to contact to open their account. So clearly here uh, a similarity uh, with uh, with the other two sectors. Um, Determining also the compliant entity is uh, is uh, is uh, is a challenge, but I would say here it's probably a, a, a bigger challenge for for shipping to the extent that uh, shipping will have the choice between as a compliant entity will have the choice between the ship owner and the dock holder entity, i.e. the technical manager and uh, the entity responsible under the ISM code. So that's obviously uh, something to also take into consideration. Um, a similar uh, challenge is definitely for all sectors to understand the EU ETS market. Um, as shipping compliant entities, uh, we'll have actually, like the other sectors, to buy the same EUAs, i.e. the same units. And as a matter of fact, the interaction between the other sectors is extremely important looking at, for example, the fundamental balance for shipping. The, the EU has decided to uh, uh, generate and, and uh, add to the market uh, 81.1 million additional EUAs. So that's, I would say, the additional supply and versus 90 million, which is based on 100% the, the expected market demand. Uh, and clearly, um, we have this, as you all know, the phasing period with 40, 70, and 100%. Therefore, you know, one could say that the market is, look, is looking bearish, uh, but um, you know, we always need to take a, an holistic view when it comes to EU ETS, and uh, and based on the other sectors and legislative developments like the reduction of LRF, the one-off rebasing, the phase out of free allocation for aviation, the market looks actually structure, structurally bullish in the medium to long term. So the question, obviously, when you should get started is obviously as soon as possible. But the main important point here is to show how interlinked are the three sectors when it comes to the EU ETS market and in terms of pricing. So you can't just look at shipping on its own merit when looking at the pricing of EUAs. Um, and um, last point maybe is to um, uh, look at the trading strategies that would be similar in uh, for aviation and and uh, and, uh, and industries. Um, and clearly, um, you know, the, at least for the first two ones, the, the strategies uh, based on volume and, and pricing, uh, you know, could certainly be uh, uh, the similar challenges for for uh, the three sectors. Although 
um, the, the, there is one more specific trading strategy uh, related to timing and the, and the cost path through element which was mentioned earlier on, uh, which can be also specific or more specific to shipping. But clearly, and again, the, the, I'm sure there are other, other elements uh, to show the uh, similarities between the, the, the three sectors. But I would just wanted to highlight uh, a few elements here uh, for, for your consideration. Very good, thank you. And uh, thank you also for highlighting some of the uh, say specialities for shipping to consider when uh, it comes into the EU EPS, there is a much wider context. Now, I would like to move on and look at this closer, but before I do, I would like to come to you, Matt, and uh, I would like to ask you a similar question. I mean, what can you highlight from other hard to abate sectors and uh, more generally from the forum's perspective, um, how do you think economic tools such as the EUEPS can go hand in hand with uh, other initiatives, voluntary initiatives to help us decarbonize shipping? Thank you. So, so I think we've, uh, we've continuously been quite focused on how to really create those synergies between the sectors and really how to take the best in class learnings and apply them to other sectorial challenges. So I'll just, I'll highlight a few kind of structural um, places where, where we do that. Uh, so we do have, as part of the forum, we have a CEO community that really gathers supply chain and transportation CEOs. Um, and, and this goes across the maritime value chain, so shipping and ports, freight forwarders, trucking, landside solutions. So one of the conversations there, obviously sustainability and resilience are some of the two key topics that are that are happening, taking place in, in, in those four. Um, and that is really also like, how can you really take that cross-sector perspective also in a policy advocacy and, and actually bring an even stronger voice um, uh, across and, uh, and and having ETS kind of uh, across the transport industries is a, is, a, is a great foundation for that. So a little bit more specific on a, an initiative we run right now around uh, procurement is First Moves Coalition, which we launched in um, in 2021 in the in glasgow at cop um, and this is really how to leverage procurement and really send a strong demand signal towards uh, to accelerate the the near zero or zero emission technologies and this covers like this covers shipping aviation and trucking and hence we also kind of internally with us look at what are some of the actions that we can take uh, within the shipping industry that they've had success with uh, in shipping uh, or in aviation uh, um, it becomes very nitty gritty in the detail when I, when I go into the details. So I think I'll just leave it there and then kind of uh, move to one last common denominator that I was very happy that uh, Coutinho also mentioned before, and that's the infrastructure. Infrastructure is such just a systematic thing that we really need to kind of look even more across the sectors. It's not something that shipping is going to solve entirely on its own. It's not something that, uh, that aviation or trucking is going to solve entirely on its own. So how do you really kind of create that enabling environment to actually make those key progress uh, forward? And some of that is also permitting. So that's very policy related. Uh, and if you look into where do we want to be in 2030, that's basically six and a half years from now. Most permitting processes take much longer than that. Uh, but leaving that aside, I think we have some quite good examples from, we have a community of airports, for example, that is looking into really now how to become the energy hubs and powerhouses uh, for, for, for the transition of the of, of the aviation sector. So that's quite inspiring and interesting to look at also in relation to the shipping industry. 
um, and, and essentially kind of applying even more of that system thinking. Uh, so kind of connecting ports, airports, landside, transportation. Um, we had a session during, uh, just held a big meeting in China. Uh, we had a session around how do you uh, connect the green corridors or the ocean green corridors with the landside efforts to really kind of look at how do you create net zero freight networks and not just uh, not just corridors that goes between ports or corridors that goes between A to B on land side or, or on, on rail uh, point to point. Um, so yeah, I think I'll, I'll pause there and it's one thing to kind of take away from here, it's really the system thinking and the role of infrastructure, which I'm extremely happy to hear also that the European Commission, and, and I know the European Commission is looking a lot at, at, at that as well. Um, and that's really one of the things that we're pushing for um, in, in, in the years to come. And then maybe just kind of go back to the general or the economic structure. How do they? Also, I just, I, I think I'll go back to my introduction. The, the solid combination of when you combine like the incentivizing regulatory framework with good industry action, um, the economic mechanisms or the fuel standards that they've discussed in IMO also that kind of creates that basic certainty. And it's up to the to the industry to really. It will never entirely de-risk progress. It's the industry that will kind of have to take that. There will always be an element of, of taking risk. Absolutely, and of course, there is uh, there is an interlink between, let's say, uh, uh, the the fuel that we we will want to be using in the future, looking at 2030 and even more so in 2040, and uh, how this will impact, let's say, exposure uh, with respect to EPS. But I I don't maybe that's a a panel discussion on its own, so I don't think we will be able to go deeper in that. But of course, policy plays a very, very important role. And in addition to, let's say, policy, every initiative that can support this voluntary initiative, of course, is very good. Now, um, I would like to go back and zoom in again on the owner's perspective. So, uh, Stamati, I will uh, come to you. And I have. I have been asked a lot of very relevant questions uh, these days by ship owners with respect to, let's say, uh, the, the legal and the commercial implications. And the, many of them, uh, I think, uh, uh, Federico already alluded to, and perhaps uh, you have even more to share. So how do you view the challenges in relation with uh, EU ETS for yourself and your customers, both from uh, from a perspective of what needs to be done to ensure legal compliance and also what must be done to manage the commercial risks. Stamati, to you. Thank you, Jorgo. Well, as far as we're concerned, we consider Synergy and United to be highly sophisticated companies. And we have been um, very early to adapt in all these new technologies associated with efficiency, the new regulations and all that. So we've been extremely proactive. However, and that's um, you know, a reason of a big concern, I feel that the shipping industry is not so sophisticated as we are. Uh, on the contrary, um, I must remind everyone that it's a highly fragmented business, which means that you have uh, thousands of owners uh, located in various jurisdictions, owning thousands of ships. Only dry bulk have 13,000 ocean going dry bulk vessels. All of the ships will be calling one way or another into European Union ports, and we have to abide under the EU regulations. So I'm very curious to see how all these uh, ships calling EU waters and EU ports uh, in the near future will be, um, how do you say it, uh, compliant uh, and paying at the end of the day 
or providing the credits uh, for for their calls, especially if it's a year after uh, the actual recording date. So that's 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 a bit of uh, concerning to me. I believe that the EU has uh, thought about it and how it's going to enforce all these um, you know billions of euros that uh, will have to be uh, an accrued liability uh, towards uh, the EU. So I'm pretty sure you've thought about it and uh, it's going to be monitored and policed in a way that uh, it's not going to be a two-tier market where responsible, conscious and proactive owners will be paying their dues while at the same time uh, vessels changing owners, managers, uh, jurisdictions and all that will be avoiding that into the future and that's going to be someone else's problem. So that's a huge concern for us. Um, but uh, moving into your question, George, uh, I must say that uh, it certainly adds a lot of complexity. We have two types of uh, voyage uh, employment uh, uh, situations. One, uh, we have the spot voyage where each owner is responsible for his own bunker emissions, cost use, port use, canal fees and all that that he has to pay. And the other is the time charter, where the charter undertakes the payment of all these, um, you know, fees and dues and costs, uh, wherever that may be, whether that's a banker provider. So, for me, the most the most critical uh, case here is to and we we I'm, I'm just going to present a parallel. Uh, we have many cases where time charter ships, which means that vessel, vessels chartered by major charters, uh, that they were responsible for the bunkering of those ships, the provision of bunkers, were left unpaid. So the bunkers, the bunker providers, after a certain period of months not being paid, have come after <laughs> the actual uh, liable entity, which is the, the ship owning company or the ship itself. Uh, so we have to make sure that all this liability is protected uh, and it's not transferred to um, the last sucker, put it this way, in a musical chairs kind of way. So we have to make sure that this is policed and enforced in a way which is fair and equitable for everyone operating in EU. And since I believe that this is going to be a situation for a global enforcement into the future, make sure that this is enforced globally. As far as we are concerned, the careful selection of counterparties, as we've done so far, which is big names with uh, huge balances, responsible people <laughs> that uh, take, uh, uh, you know, they look after the relationship is very important. And I would avoid until this is fully implemented, settled and tested, I would avoid um, risking uh, relationships uh, in respect of client, sorry, charter and uh, ship owner that may have risks into the future because the cost associated with that may be colossal, not only the monetary cost, but also the reputational cost may be colossal. So one piece of advice from us is to carefully choose your relationships, carefully choose um, your um, you know, counterparties in order to avoid the risk, which is going to come six months or a year after, when is going to be the time to pay for all that. So it's, it's, it's very important that we select the right people into the future. And I believe that if you select the right counterparties, uh, in a spirit of good cooperation that we have seen so far from a number of charters, I believe that you can crystallize that in a way uh, and to be embedded into the charter parties uh, going forward. That's as far as we're concerned.
Fantastic, and uh, thank you. I, I would say also some you have identified some areas that are critical. I would say uh, from a commercial and uh, legal point of view for uh, the industry to consider. And uh, I see that uh, we are entering in the last part of our, of our discussion. So uh, time flies when you're having fun, as they say. Uh, maybe Mete, one uh, one last question to you before we wrap up. Uh, look, looking at this, uh, I mean some some, um, uh, let's say, uh, of the operators that are exposed to the UEDS, one could argue that they have, a, let's say, a, a head start. Uh, is there anything uh, that um, operators can uh, do to capitalize on this uh, head start uh, until, let's say, the rest of the world comes up to speed with uh, some kind of economic measure in the IMO? Thank you. I'll keep it short in the interest of time, but so I think we all here understand like that a truly global industry kind of requires a, a global regulatory framework and, and, and that kind of having that flexibility to, to actually utilize your, your, your assets best across borders because they don't like ship doesn't really know of regional borders. But but that kind of um, when when we then look specifically of, of what is it that uh, with the with ETS, I think that there are kind of um, the, the, the advantages that, that, that the ship owners can can take from being uh, being first movers on, on that are, are quite significant as well. Uh, so clearly the EU is a front runner on setting the setting a high standard and, and setting the bar high for, for the pace of the transition. I think that's kind of what will happen, uh, that the transition will, will, will be even faster uh, in, in an EU context. Uh, and then the specific situation that we're kind of looking into right now is actually the scarcity of fuels. There's simply not enough fuel for, uh, for the transition of, and for the vessels that are being ordered uh, that will sail on, on methanol and, uh, in, in the near future. So, so being at the, at, the, at the forefront of that is also being a person for operating under the ETS mechanism will kind of provide a head start into securing that future supply, establishing value chain and securing the fuel. I think that's one thing. And then going back to what you mentioned, on the difference what I will refer to as the long tail of ship owners, so that the ship, the industry doesn't only consist of the, of, of the of the big ship owners that that can um, essentially right now with quite a lot of cash flow kind of uh, move into uh, into uh, into integration also with with the energy suppliers. There, there there needs to be both first movers and what I will refer to as the fast followers. So the fast followers is basically that long tail. Uh, uh, that we also all know exists. So I do truly believe that, that there is a head start to be had by some of the first schools, but it's very, it's very much focused around securing the current fuel. Yeah, I, I get your point. And perhaps uh, <clears throat> from my side would be that this, uh, this primes the process and uh, gets uh, companies in a smaller scale uh, to sort out, let's say, internally the processes, figure out the partners, have the contracts in place and uh, maybe later on towards the end of the decade when we look at securing fuels as well maybe this is also something to uh, that getting this in order as quickly as possible as Frederick said uh, will help. Um, I think we are coming very quickly to the end of our discussion and I will go back to you Stamati because at the end of the day it's a shipping that must, uh, must implement this so um, uh, I have a different type of question just to close this discussion. And uh, what I would like to, to ask uh, is it to imagine that we are in the year 2028, right? So it has been already some years that shipping is included in the EDS. And 
of course, your company is doing great and surrendering uh, EUA's daily business for you, right? So I want you to let me know then in this situation, who in your team did you uh, rely the most or who you have partnered up with to emerge as a, as a winner, let's say, on the other side of the EU ETS wave? Well, thank you. I mean, obviously choosing the right counterparties for whatever you do is very critical in any type of business. And I believe that as far as the EU is ETS is concerned, that's uh, uh, one of the best examples of how critical it is the selection of, uh, of, of the right counterparties. I must say here that shipping is a very slow um, moving and a very slow to change and adapt industry. So, you know, if you think about it, we have the same propulsion, marine propulsion for the last 50 years. It's usually very resistant to change. I believe right now we are enforcing too many regulations at the same time for a good reason. I'm not saying this is not a good reason, um, but it's going to take hundreds of billions or trillions in order to uh, change all the ships out there. So it's going to entail a lot of cost and a lot of effort. Um, I don't know what it's going to be in 2028, but I believe that it's a massive uh, undertaking what we have right now, which it's going to take a lot of um, effort from all parties to be implemented. My biggest concern right now is the awareness. And thank you for hosting this panel where we try to, uh, everybody talks about EXI and CII, but the EU ETS is still very low as far as awareness is concerned among, among the shipping companies. Uh, I believe that 80% is still not prepared or preparing for what's happening. And we're only half in the year and uh, we have a lot of preparation ahead of us opening up of accounts and uh, regulators and all that. So I believe that, uh, 2028 is a very optimistic scenario, but for the next next six months, we really have to accelerate our efforts in order to spread the awareness of what's coming so people can realize what will be from 2024 onwards. Thank you. Thank you very much. And uh, as I said, I mean, this has been uh, very insightful for me and I have enjoyed this discussion. I hope our viewers did the same. The time has uh, gone a little bit too fast as far as I'm concerned. So here we are now. I would like to thank each and every one of you. I could have asked you a thousand more questions, uh, but uh, I will hand over uh, the, uh, let's say, hand over back to the organizers. And on this note, once again, thank you very, very much. And I wish you a very nice afternoon. Thank, thank you, you very much. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Thank you very much.